This is Eli Lake, and welcome back to The Reeducation. My guest today is philosopher and author Christina Hoff Summers, and our topic is what the end of Roe v. Wade means for feminism. Multiple abortion rights groups gathering near Wicker Park Sunday, hoping their voices reach the Indiana State Capitol. This is a right that all women should be granted, whether, whether, whether Republicans like it or not. Their efforts come one day before lawmakers meet for a special session to debate tighter abortion laws following the Supreme Court's decision last month to overturn Roe versus Wade. Senate Republicans introducing a bill that will block most abortions in the state unless it's to prevent a substantial permanent impairment of life or if the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest. SB1 is completely unacceptable. But the leader of the state's most prominent anti-abortion group in a recorded video saying Senate Bill 1 doesn't go far enough. This legislation allows for late-term abortions to continue in the state of Indiana, including partial birth abortions. While Vice President Kamala Harris plans to speak to Indiana lawmakers tomorrow. She's been a huge advocate for pro-choice. She's done an excellent job in that regard. Some demonstrators here aren't as optimistic it will make much difference. I can only vote so much, it's not helping. And some abortion rights advocates who demonstrated here today say they will continue their fight tomorrow outside of the Indiana State Capitol. Reporting from Highland, I'm Trey Ward, ABC7 Eyewitness. You just heard a report on one of thousands of protests that have sprouted up across the country in the last few months after a leak of a Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The leak was accurate, and the court did indeed withdraw a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion, at least before the third trimester of her pregnancy. To say this has been a crisis for the feminist movement is an understatement. The reversal of Roe has led many feminists to fear that the progress women have earned and fought for over the last 50 years is now in danger. Now, the argument for legal abortion is that a woman should be the sovereign of her own body, and the state has no right to force her to give birth to a child if she does not want to. It should be her choice. There should be no man, no priest or politician, no doctor or any hospital administrator, no government official or husband who should have the right to force any woman to have a child against her will. A humorous ad produced by a group called Mothers Against Greg, referring to Texas Governor Greg Abbott, makes this point well. A doctor tells a pregnant woman and her husband that their baby's brain is not fully developed, and if she carries the pregnancy to term, the baby will die within hours and suffer. I wish I could tell you what to do, but there is only one person who can make this choice. How much time do I have? And that person is Greg. Greg? Who the f is Greg? Yeah, let me just give him a call. Hey, Greg. Dr. Robinson here. Listen, I've got a pregnancy that could... Yes? But I think this one is the... Yes, okay. Sure. Sure. Okay, I'll let them know. Yeah. That's going to be a no. Best of luck to you. Now, I have to say, I'm very sympathetic to this argument. As the cliche goes, if you don't like abortion, don't get one. But at the same time, 
I recognize that people of good faith can come to a different conclusion than me. Advances in medicine and technology are such that a fetus is viable at much earlier stages in a pregnancy than experts believed in 1973, when the court codified abortion rights throughout the country. I became a father last year, and it was very clear after about four months that my wife was carrying a little person. She would hiccup and kick inside the womb. Photos of her showed a tiny fist raised above her head. Now, I consider myself pro-choice, but I also can understand why others would call abortion murder. There are really no clear-cut answers, and unlike in Europe, there's also no consensus in this country about when abortion should be legal and when they need to be restricted. Now, usually, when there's a matter of policy or law where public opinion is deeply divided, like abortion, it's almost always better to leave this to the states to set their own course. This has the advantage of forcing both sides to try to persuade the other. It forces the advocates to win over majorities. Roe v. Wade has effectively deprived Americans of that process for half a century, and that process has been deprived on fairly dubious constitutional logic. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the iconic liberal justice who died recently of the Supreme Court, opposed the reasoning behind Roe v. Wade, even though she was an advocate for abortion rights. On the other hand, it would be a tragedy if we returned to a pre-Roe v. Wade world where women who did get abortions often had to endure a torturous ordeal. There was often no anesthesia, there were nightmare stories of women who were permanently maimed by the abortion procedure conducted by people without the training or skill to do it safely. On top of this, it was a crime. So even small things, like a woman's right to scream in pain, were denied in order to evade detection. Here is one woman's very sad story of surviving an illegal abortion before the Roe v. Wade decision. After he had finished... He showed me, here's what I took out of you. He said, uh, you must not let any boys touch you. It's very important that you keep yourself pure. And at that point, he started to molest me. And all this time, of course, I've got blood coming out of me. I, I can't make a sound. I can't call out. Now, of course, I don't think anyone would like to return to that world. But I also don't think we will. To start, the Supreme Court's decision does not make abortion illegal in America. It leaves this question to the states themselves. Some states will ban abortion, but others will remove abortion restrictions. A woman stuck in a state that has banned abortion will have at least an option to travel to a state where abortion is safe and legal. Unlike in 1972, activists can move money through the internet to help pay for the travel and procedure. That said, the end of Roe also raises a deeper question about the status of women in America and whether other gains the feminist movement has made are as fragile as abortion rights. And here, I am more of an optimist than many feminists today. I represent that large middle-class group of women who could have all the comforts and conveniences of life. In fact, I did, but I opted out Instead, I decided to devote my time to fight for equality of women. We just heard from Jackie Sabalas, the first president of the New York chapter of the National Organization for Women. Like many other women of her generation, she was electrified by Betty Friedan's landmark book, The Feminine Mystique. It was a sensation in the early 1960s. Friedan's project was to destroy a myth, a myth 
that a woman could only be happy if she was married and at home raising the children. Women should be able to compete for the most desirable jobs in our society, Fredan argued. Women were equal and should be treated as such. Women should be valued for their minds and not their bodies. The feminine mystique, Fredan said, only valued women for the services they provided to their husbands and families. Here is Fredan in 1964 explaining her thesis. Well, the feminine mystique, it defines women solely in terms of her sexual relation to man as a uh, uh, man's sex object, as wife, mother, homemaker, and never in human terms as an individual person, as a human being herself. I play this clip because it shows that the women's liberation movement was much larger than the legal right to abortion. It was first and foremost a campaign to change American culture. This is why feminists picketed the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City. It's why the second wave feminists coined the term, the personal is political, because they wanted to create a new kind of family where men and women shared responsibility for keeping the home and raising the children. It's why they demanded that men who sexually harass women in the office be shamed and held to account. Now, one could argue that the personal these days has become a bit too political. I mean, do we really need Uber Eats sending us texts about where the company stands on criminal justice reform? Should we encourage people to end friendships over how their neighbors or former friends voted in a presidential election? It's a little bit too much. But 50 years ago, the feminists, I believe, were absolutely right. The family, the office, churches, movie studios, major magazines, you name it treated or portrayed women like sex objects or irrational hysterics. America is a much richer place today because those old cultural norms have been toppled. And the barrier to entry for the most competitive jobs, the most glamorous jobs, the most important roles in our society has been lifted for women. And we are all beneficiaries because of that. Now, it's not to say that the women's movement never lost. Indeed, they did. The campaign, for example, for an Equal Rights Amendment failed, but it's revealing why it failed. It failed because a woman named Phyllis Schlafly organized other women to defeat the amendment. Here is Schlafly thanking her husband for allowing her to speak a kind of proto-troll from Phyllis Schlafly that she would often employ in the introduction to her speeches. I would like to uh, thank my husband Fred for letting me come today. I love to say that because it irritates the women's livers more than anything that I say. Don't let that line fool you, because Phyllis Schlafly, perhaps ironically, was a real-life refutation of the misogyny of her era. Her brilliant mind and formidable rhetorical skills put the lie to the stereotype that women were vapid, stupid girls who lacked the aptitude and drive to compete with men in politics, law, or medicine. She thanked her husband for letting her speak, but it was obvious to everyone else that Schlafly wore the pants in that marriage, so to speak. And in this respect, I think that Schlafly may have won the battle over the ERA, but it was Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Kathy Millett, and Jackie Sabalas who won the war. They changed millions of minds through their activism and advocacy, and the world is not the same as it was 50 years ago. And this brings us back to abortion, because 50 years ago, the women's movement changed our culture by exercising their constitutional rights to organize, argue, and persuade. And now, feminists will have to do that again in states like Mississippi and Texas when it comes to abortion.
And you know what? They may lose in the short term. But even if they do, we should never forget how much society has indeed changed because a few brave, creative, brilliant women more than 50 years ago formed a movement that simply argued a woman didn't have to be a docile housewife to be happy. A woman could be whatever she wanted to be. Well, right now, the re-education is so fortunate to have our guest today, Christina Huff-Summers, who is a philosopher, an ethicist, one of the most trenchant critics of second wave feminism, and who was a longtime scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and is still an emeritus scholar there, Christina Huff-Summers. Dr. Summers, thank you for coming on the re-education. Oh, it's lovely to be here. Big fan of the podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much. So I had you on today because I wanted to talk about how abortion and particularly Roe v. Wade in the American context relates to the broader kind of trajectory of feminism and particularly American feminism. But before I get into that, I want to just ask you for our listeners to maybe explain what people mean when they talk about the three waves of feminism, starting with first, second, and then into the third wave, which I guess we're in now. Yeah, well, the first wave of feminism was the... Suffragettes, right? Yes, the struggle to achieve the right to vote. And it preoccupied most of the 19th century, early 20th century. Then after women won the vote, the movement never went away, but it was sort of quiet for a few decades. And then it came back with a roar in the late 60s. For Dan, is early 60s, right? Or Yeah, yeah, early 60s. Right. Actually, a lot of the important political work was done. Some important laws were passed in the 60s. But it, it came into public consciousness as a huge movement in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. And that was it's called the second wave. And that was a movement that both had sort of classical feminist issues. They were addressing things that the first wave had not been able to do. Harassment in the workplace, taking down just arbitrary barriers to women moving up in, in various fields and education. And we got, you know, Title IX and so forth. And then the, there, no one could agree on what the third wave is, and some declare fourth waves. In fact, the whole notion of waves has now been declared toxic. <laughs> really? Oh. Yes, yes, people don't like it. And not for good reasons. I mean, I think they're wrong. I think it is a useful historical marker. But the, the third wave is it, it, a number of things. We have celebrity feminism and empowerment feminism and, you know, there's this then there was a kind of fainting couch feminism where suddenly instead of being equal to men, it was about being like frightened of them and trigger warnings and, the, you know, treating women as though they were these fragile little birds that had to be wrapped in cotton wool. Well, so uh, you were saying that in the third wave, the feminists had disagreements. There was a 
mean, I remember in the 90s, what, the, there were a number of feminists who supported Bill Clinton after the allegations. Oh, well, uh, yeah, but there were the sex and class. then, But then there were also, there's Andrea Dworkin and, and Catherine McKinnon, yeah, who, right. who believed that not only were they uh, maybe against heterosexual sex in general, at least in Dworkin's case, but also believed that, you know, pornography was on the spectrum of rape. So there was a sense that there were a lot of different ideas that were kind of internally and factions within the third wave. Am I getting that right? Many, many factions. Yeah. A lot of fights and a lot of fun. I mean, there was sort of just girls gone wild sort of style of feminism. So was, it, that, was that Camille Paglia? <laughs> well, probably it didn't. She believed it. She used to, to tell me that she was believed in Amazonian feminism, that she thought, you know, women should study military history and learn how men deploy power because she thought women, first of all, she thought women can't get along. She said they, they are constantly, all of these groups are in constant turmoil. We see it today more than ever, but it's been there all along. Ever since I've been kind of hanging out with feminist groups and things, there's infighting of a, 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 a just a devastating nature of, of bitterness and there was even an article early on in Ms. Magazine, I think it was Joe Freeman, about trashing sisterhood, the dark side, about how much trashing there was. But anyway, Camille Polly thinks that women have to get over that and be stronger and not so hypersensitive and constant, mm-hmm. running to the corner and taking their toys away, refusing to cooperate with others. There's a big problem in the movement. But the third wave is kind of it 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 we, we it's not necessarily defined by a like a, a sort of set of issues or even a there's script. no there's no consensus of what it is it just seems to be you know what i think actually is that second wave first and second wave feminism were successful they did their work now it's sort of up to women to take advantage and they have i mean if you look at american society mm-hmm. overall women are it's a kind of golden age in the sense that you know, education, women have surpassed men, left them in the dust, not just with bachelor's degrees, but master's and PhDs. Women have overtaken men in fields where they, they were almost absent in the 60s and 70s. Now they are dominant in biology, dominant. In, they, they own veterinary medicine, psychology right. and so forth. But whatever women want to do, they seem to be able to do it. It don't seem to be barriers and I think the second wave, the first and second wave were successful. So I think what you're seeing is, is it's almost a lifestyle to want to be a feminist now. Now, it's not to say there aren't serious issues because many women in the world, around the world, haven't had a first or second wave. They haven't had so much as a trickle of feminism. And I think internationally, there's a need for a movement. And, and even in this country, you know, I think there are... I, I disagree with a lot of my colleagues in feminist philosophy, but you could. If there's, I've learned from them, and there's, there's always, you know, things we haven't thought about, things we have to consider, and now we've got Roe, Roe, Roe being. Yeah, well, I want to get into, I want to get into Roe v. Wade, yeah. because that's sort of setting up. But I wanted, what I wanted to do for our listeners is just sort of say this is a political, philosophical, intellectual movement that is now a century old, at least in its modern incarnation. And you could argue that there are, there are certainly antecedents in history, whether it's John Stuart Mill in the 19th century who wrote about the rights of women, 
or Lysistrata, right? I mean, there's a, it's not like the idea of thinking about women and women's rights and the role that women play in society is something that was invented in the late 19th century. It's been around for a long time. Oh, but no, it's been here from for the very a long... beginning. Yeah. <laughs> but I just want to stress how successful it's been. Yeah. I mean, it's despite a lot of confusion and infighting and all of that, American women have their basic rights. And now they're going to have to fight again in some states for the right to abortion. But that, that's a complicated issue because there are feminists who are pro-life. Well, right there. OK, so right there would be the first. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons I, I love I love your work and I love you is because you're a lively thinker. And then you say things that are very you're a very clear thinker. But what you just said there would be almost a shock if you were paying attention to some of the sort of messaging right now as the Democratic Party or a lot of these sort of women's organizations, which is to say it would be impossible to be a feminist and also believe that abortion was murder. And there are millions of women, obviously, who do have that position. They want equal pay. They want they want their rights recognized. They are against sexual harassment. They would be very, very comfortable writing for Ms. Magazine in 1973. However, they have a different view on when life begins and how to treat a fetus, which I don't necessarily share, but I wanted to get from you why you think those people are still in the feminist movement. And, and let's like talk about the argument for why they maybe are not considered feminist by many of the leaders of that movement today. Well, I think that feminism in its classical sense and what, what I would just call equality feminism is a movement that I think any, you know, clear thinking person and, and person of conscience should support and be proud of the history and support organizations that are concerned with protecting women's rights and looking out for their well-being. Although I, 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 do, I worry about men and boys too, but nevertheless, there has been a tradition where women were excluded from, from power and could be exploited in very precise, very specific ways. And we, we needed a powerful movement to overcome the attitudes and to change the institutions that sustained these practices that held women back. Anyway, I think any person of conscience should be, be for that. So, of course, there are, there are feminists across the political spectrum. There are conservative women who are very, very feminist. And there are traditionally religious women, Catholic women, who happen to take a different view about where life begins and when it becomes morally salient at what point in the d development of a, of a fetus when it becomes a baby. And so they agree with every, all the basic principles of feminism. They might want to be active in a movement to, to have better legislation or better protections for working women against harassment. And they believe in these issues. However, because of their view on abortion, they were disinvited from the women's march and they, they're treated as pariahs in the movement. And this is sad because, it, it especially internationally, there are many, many women who need to have a feminist movement. They need the kind of enlightenment that, and, and availability you know, of, of the, or let's just say, inspiration from Western women who have won their rights. And there are many countries in the world, as I said, where they have not. But 
what could are and but they are conservative in the sense that they're not you know cultural radicals the the women in Afghanistan or the women in 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 different parts of India and Pakistan and across Africa they need a women's movement but who would be exclude them because of their traditional views about something like abortion or even gay gay rights so your your view is that the work of feminism or we still need a first and second wave for feminism in many parts of the world and if you have a litmus test that says that you need to accept the right of abortion for all women then you're excluding people who would need to be part of the feminist movement internationally the most yeah and you're just excluding a lot of american women a lot of traditionally religious women and they don't even have to be religious i mean i i taught philosophy for many years and i had courses on contemporary social problems contemporary dilemmas you read articles my students would would read articles for and against abortion and the the arguments it's not even you know, as i said you don't have to be some of them were theologically based but some of them aren't it's a it's an unresolved dilemma at the heart of the abortion issue is this mystery and people solve it in different ways and not all women agree that you can take a life of a fetus in the well, some don't think you can do it after conception. Some, you know, people have different views about when it we could meaningfully call it, it a human being, a baby. But if you exclude them, you are almost guaranteeing the movement will be elitist and distant from the majority of women. Well, now that you mentioned that about sort of the idea that there can be consensus on all these other issues and it doesn't necessarily, it shouldn't be the defining point. Let me, let me push back or as I like to say, steel man and present the other side. As I see it, there are two strong arguments. One is that whatever you're thinking about the status of the fetus, it is a core understanding that a woman should have a sovereignty over her own body and her own decision. So if she is bringing that fetus to pregnancy to 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 term if she's if she's giving birth if she's going to you know live through the pregnancy and having just experienced this with my own wife i can tell you that's a real commitment yeah <laughs> that you know there's no authority that should have that any no authority should tell the woman what she can and can't do about abortion as the old sort of flip bumper sticker slogan would say if you don't like abortion don't have one the other argument which is not so much of an argument, but it's just an appreciation of history, which is that if you go back to the bad old days when abortion was banned and illegal in a lot of society, we had very different social mores, it did lead to kind of the awful maiming and disfiguring of you know women's genitalia and when they had sort of unsafe abortions, if they felt that they had to go through it, and also a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And a lot of women you know, who were kind of caught up in that. And it was it was not just a question of, you know, they weren't ready for it. And maybe, the, you know, they, they weren't ready to be a parent. They weren't ready to be a mother. It was, you know, difficult for them. But it was also really a question of their safety, their medical safety in a lot of ways, because there would be women who would seek out abortions and they would be performed by people who were clearly not qualified to do it. And it would often be a, an awful kind of terrible experience. And so those two things, I think, are very powerful. And especially that second point is still 
you know, kind of in our collective memory. And so when you see the decision on Dobbs and, and revoking Roe v. Wade, immediately, I think people do turn to that. They do. They remember that. And they think we cannot go back. Is that overstated? Well, actually, I agree Are those fears that, legitimate? I, that, I have to agree with most of that, but I'm going to make another distinction. I agree with that. I am pro, pro-abortion, pro like to say that, but pro-choice. And the reason is that it's just the cost is so high in in personal suffering. And I don't the current ruling of the Supreme Court, I don't even know how that's going to work because mm-hmm. it's, it's it's free. Some states will have it, some won't. And then they're, are, they're going to have to police women not to leave the state. And if they truly believe that murder is going on, they maybe they would feel justified in doing that. I don't know. Well, I don't think any of the, pro- my understanding is that none of the anti-abortion laws will actually have any kind of criminal liability for the woman. It's always the doctor who performs it who would be subject well, to criminal charges, right? That's what we assume. I I, I mean, I never, no. thought of, I never thought, here we are. Say that but again. I'm sorry, because I, I never thought Roe Ro, Ro v. Wade would be overturned. And yeah. now I'm, I am very surprised and I I wish they hadn't done it. But having said that, we live in a complicated, messy democracy with people who disagree on fundamental things. And what you in that case, what you have to do is and actually I read Alito's opinion and, and he, he wrote this very well, is that it, it should be something that's not this decision about abortion should come from voters. It should come from citizens arguing with each other, trying to persuade one another, and then voting. Mm. And then we have the rule. And and I say that because even though I take the side and would hope I would be there to vote for uh, access to abortion, I can understand the other point of view. It's not my view, but I can, I get it. I think if anybody has looked at the latest you know, images of babies that we get from from sure. these sonograms. It's Caitlin Flanagan has written about this beautifully in the Atlantic. I think it was in not sure in two ni- thousand and nineteen about how conflicted she is because she she reviewed the very arguments that you just gave and said that's why she's does not want to go back to these horrible stories. Where, you know, where women were so desperate not to be pregnant because they're, it might have meant losing their job. It might have meant completely destroying you know, their, their well-being and, make, and force them into poverty, all of that. And, and they would sometimes use lye and you know, these dangerous chemicals to get rid of the baby. It was just a horror show. She acknowledges that. But then she said, against all that, there's this photograph. Right. And you see a fetus. It's hard not to call it a baby. It, it, it even 12 weeks, 13 weeks, 15 weeks, you see it. I guess most people have sonograms 15 or 16 weeks in. And the idea of going in and tearing it apart, destroying it, or however there it's chemically dissolved. Right. You can see that it's a moral quandary. We don't want to do that yet. We don't. So what is the solution? Well, I, I don't, there's not going to be a solution because. It's, well, it's, there is a solution that we kind of have and Europe has, which is that there's yes, less that's... restrictions in the first trimester. 
exactly. more in the second. And we really don't like want you to have it in the third trimester unless the life of the mother is at stake or something like that. I mean, there is a kind of general. Exactly. And that's where I think most Americans are, this sort of gray area. They maybe, I think a majority didn't want Roe v. Wade overturned, but if you press them, they don't believe in abortion on demand. They, it's exactly what you said, that they do have a sense that there is a developing being and at some point becomes impossible not to acknowledge the, the it certainly looks very human and, and you know, but by the, by the end of the first trimester. And that's what they've done in Europe. But in Europe, it went through that democratic process and they, they had to compromise. So people that wanted abortion up to the you know, very last day of the pregnancy, absolutely no impediments. They lost out because in Europe, Holland and France, they do have put some obstacles. And on the other hand, those who want no abortion and say, you know, life begins at conception, they didn't get their way. And that's probably where we will go. Now, I want to go back to what we were talking about. Can these women, feminists for life, is that contradiction in terms they do they do more than that they they see it as a women's issue they do not think that most women would want to abort their baby that it's they're driven by economic necessity and they have have organizations where they try to help the women economically help them with the baby you know they provide for them the solution is not getting rid of the fetus the solution is helping the mother that's one positive thing that could come out of all of this is that a, we'll have to work it out in each state democratically. And B, even Republicans who want to, you know, they want to sustain this ruling of the court, they're going to have to have a way to, to help women. We can't just allow this women to be forced to have babies. And it's going to, you know, affect poor women, rural women far more than, I mean, it's not going to be sure. bad or for middle class and upper middle class women in many states nothing will change. It's women in the states that are not going to allow it and the women are for it and they, are, they need help. And the, the Feminists for Life would help. Now, there are a lot of feminists that, who will help by trying to you know, have an underground railroad. And I think people should support that. There's a lot it of ways. It doesn't have to be that. under. It's not going to be the same as the 60s or the 50s or the 40s because there will be lots of states where it'll be very easy to get an abortion. And you really just have to probably end up getting a woman who wants to get an abortion in a state where it's illegal to a state where it is legal. That is a very different world than, you know, the nightmarish times of the middle of the 20th. Century. Oh, absolutely. And, and all of this, I mean, the overreaction in media of saying, you know, we're going it's just in the handmaid's tale. We're living there. Elizabeth well, that's Warren. what I was going to ask you about. Where is this handmaid's tale stuff coming from? And the idea that this Supreme Court decision, which I actually think is sound constitutional oh yeah reasoning all other things even if i don't necessarily like the outcome but and 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 there are lots of liberal justices who would agree with you know me who's not a lawyer or anything but that who take that view but lawrence up that roe v wade was poorly reasoned ruth bader ginsburg no ruth bader ginsburg was a very she even in her i think when she was in her hearings to become supreme court justice she expressed this, this, some very interesting reservations about the reasoning behind Roe v. Wade. And I think it was actually not, it wasn't during the hearings, but it was a no, speech she'd given at the time. Then she did it in a speech later on. Yeah, okay. She did it. She did it a few times. 
Right. But so where is this? It seems like it's not just alarmism, but it also seems, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it does seem that the feminist movement or the, the pro-choice movement is terrified of having to persuade their fellow citizens of the wisdom of their position and instead would like to impose policies and not just policies, but like really vocabulary and thinking on everybody else. And, it, and, and there is a weird parallel between that and like the refusal for, you know, years for, of the, what, what feminists would call the patriarchy to kind of impose ideas and not attempt to sort of persuade, you know, to not open things up to that kind of debate. Now, I understand the argument that there are certain rights that are inviolable and should not be at the whim of a popular election. I get that. And that is true, such as the right to vote or the right to your property or something like that. But if you take it too far and you start to sort of say all of these things are in the same status as these basic and fundamental rights that cannot be influenced in any way by, you know, democratic and regular rough and tumble politics, well, then you're taking an anti-democratic view, even if you're doing it in the name of defending a kind of right. And so is there a sense that the modern third wave, whatever you want to call it, the current feminist movement is not equipped or not ready or just unwilling to just engage in the politics of persuasion. Instead, they engage in a kind of politics of moral blackmail and, and a, a kind of almost moral bullying. Well, ask yourself this. How could this happen? How right. could hmm. Roe v. Wade be here? We have we supposedly have this powerful, you know, feminist establishment. But we don't, as I told you, the third wave just—it's just disparate. And the the organizations like the National Organization for Women and the Feminist Majority—I think the average member is, you know, about the age of the viewers of Fox News, and so maybe they're <laughs> older women. And yet, and and women, you know, have are women vote more than men in in everywhere across the country, and yet this happened, and on their watch. And I think it was a failure. And several people, even including, uh, I think, Susan Faludi, have wa worried about feminism of the era being captive to, you know, sort of celebrities and female empowerment. You go, girl. The Amber Heard scandal of the ACLU exactly. writing her press release, her op-ed and, and like politicizing the Johnny Depp thing. And then, you know. We yeah, Amber Heard feminism. I mean, that style. Yeah. Just she's the spokesperson and Instagram and TikTok. And, and what several people have pointed out is if you, you, your movement is going to be based on celebrities and on social media, you, you're going to live by that. You will die by that. And I think we saw that with Amber Heard and the, Johnny Depp is that the, the crowd switched sides and was very much on the side of Johnny Depp. And so first, I, I didn't follow the case. Well, so let me, let me, let me, let me put a, Amber, like a that, that was devastating. I think for sure. the, and Susan Faludi points that out and others, if you want to, if, if they were, had been smart and watched what was going on for the, really the last 20 years or actually it started as early as 73 when the when Roe Ro v. Wade came in, the, the right and, and conservatives, the state, especially the state legislatures, have been working to get people elected and to pass laws that it, it control, you know, access to abortion and, and make it difficult. Where were they? 
And, I mean, there were some. That, I don't want to say no one, there were no efforts by feminists, but that was not the attention of the women's movement. And as you said, there was really no effort to make the case and make the argument. The, the case for abortion has to be made again and again and again, and you have to acknowledge the other side and show some understanding and, and a willingness even to make concessions. And that's how democracy works, and that's how progress is made. But I don't think our women's movement, the concurrent women's movement, is operating in a democratic way. They're more comfortable calling people mm. out, being indignant, and you know, hashtags and deploring the state of the world and having celebrities is the face. Okay, well, I would push back only slightly in that there has been enormous amounts of money raised and money spent and political activity in and around Supreme Court nominations, and particularly in and around when a Republican president has nominated a Supreme Court justice. And what we saw during Donald Trump, particularly with Brett Kavanaugh, was a huge campaign to discredit him with, you know, very old allegations, which could not be proved. And the whole thing, I mean, I think, you know, infuriated many conservatives. That radicalized me, I think. Yeah, for very different reasons. Exactly. No, but what I'm saying is that there was an effort, knowing that the battleground for this was the Supreme Court. And as I look at it on the outside, is that maybe the lesson here was that, or to modify what you're saying, is that where were the efforts to continue to try to persuade Americans in the event that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, considering this can, this was such a priority for the right, which is that. And the right- you don't just want, you don't want something like that just to come from on high and right. decree from this, you know, imperial court. Yes. It's so much better when you, you build the consensus at, 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 at the state and, level. And right. And. Or, you know, or they come together at the same time, like, which is what I think happened with gay marriage, gay rights in general, is the public right. was changing its opinion. But that was it was massive efforts to change opinions. Uh, and then you have this, if you're only just hoping the court, that was ridiculous. Look, right. because look what happened. I mean, it, 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 somebody was asleep at the wheel or they were just carried away with with sometimes very frivolous issues. You know, fat is a feminist issue. Every time I would go to the website of the National Organization for Women, it was all about body positivity and these things. And okay, fine, that's a, an issue for, and not for feminists. Feminism should be a political movement that's looking out for the rights of women. Based, and it, not all feminists, as I said, but most do believe that a, a, without the right to ha- have an abortion, you know, too many women could be forced into unwanted pregnancies. And I mean, this is fundamental. Right. And they have to make the case. But as, as we're saying, they didn't do it. They, it, they just would now it seems like it's calling names, which is not going to work to make people angrier. Well, I mean, in, in fairness, there's been a response and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a one of, it's, it's deeply emotional. It's like, you know, it, it, a lot of, I think activists and feminism feel very wounded and we can't really, ju- maybe it's not, we shouldn't judge in, in the immediate aftermath. There will be strategies, I'm assuming, as these states kind of go on with their business and the legislatures do what they do. And you will see more, 
you know, le far less restrictive abortion laws probably in pro-choice states like New York and far more restrictive stuff in pro-life states. But Elizabeth, we... Warren, Elizabeth Warren had a funny suggestion yeah. that we should, speaking of that creative idea, that national parks should be places where the government can place abortion facilities because they are all over the country and that's federal land over which the states have no jurisdiction. <laughs> so you can go to. Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Well, that's 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 interesting. It's, yeah, it's. Uh, well, I actually, actually it's yeah. ridiculous, but there's a, there's a kernel of truth because there are. Federal lands there, there, there are all sorts of things. It's people are going to have to make adjustments. You want an abortion and go to a national park. <laughs> you know, well, Is that the idea? Go to a national park well, or a military or a military park. base. There's a lot. Military bases, maybe Indian reservations. I don't know. There are places yeah. in states that don't have abortion that could they could find ways to do it. I'm not saying it's a good idea or workable, but, but that's the kind of thing. And there's already, as I said, already millions of dollars being raised to take to transport women, you know, to have numbers right. they can call and a whole, a whole ways of helping them get out of the state where they they can't find well, and we have a we in, in just a few in the few remaining minutes that we have, I want to ask whether first of all, kind of a, a question that kind of gives us a little bit of perspective. If you were to go back to the kind of height of the second wave movement in the 70s, all of I mean, there was a huge push with the Equal Rights Amendment. You had women like Bella Abzug who were participating in like New York City politics. You had a commitment to make the case for women's equality or when someone called women's liberation in through the democratic process and in the rough and tumble of politics. And I think that the Roe decision in some ways, because it took it out of that, but it maybe also had an effect. I don't know. I'm just asking you as the expert and, and it's something to think about, but it's almost like now, like many other kinds of progressive groups, there is a real distrust of democracy and lib and small out liberalism in general in the feminist movement, where you see like, you know, pushing for getting rid of due process in campus sexual assault cases, for example. And I find that to be a, a sort of an interesting story over like maybe 50 years where you have, you know, second wave feminist fully taking advantage of the political process and the rights guaranteed by small out liberalism and the US Constitution to now 50 years later, where there is skepticism, distrust in some ways of, of the same kinds of principles that were used effectively to win, win, win so much equality. Well, I watched it happen. Yeah. And it as a, uh, I was a graduate student in the late seventies and of course considered myself a feminist, but I would watch as my colleagues, I'm speaking in academia, but then what was happening in academia had a large impact on the classrooms of the universities and the schools of education and, and and now in the society at large. I watched as liberal feminism, classical equality feminism, was eclipsed by a sort of hardline, take no prisoners, left-wing feminism that was not liberal, that was hostile to classical liberalism. It viewed, you, I can find a number of my colleagues who would, were, were suspicious of things like due process and the freedom of speech, the freedom right. of speech was freedom. We saw that, of we saw that, I saw that in when I was in college in the 90s. Yes, yes. In the yeah. 90s, that it was in the class. When I, in the 70s, it was in the graduate seminars. And by the 90s, you were, 
being taught to students. And I was horrified because I just didn't to think that women, the cause of women, the cause of humanity in general, was well served by basically what was warmed over Marxism. They just crossed out class and put gender and turned women into an oppressed class, men into the patriarchal overlords, and reinterpreted everything in in that light. And well, but th- it, there was a there was a smidgen yeah. of truth to some of that, especially if you take the long view, right? You know. There really wasn't. I'm saying there's a smidgen of truth in the idea that men ruled societies in a way and excluded women from all kinds of, you know, perks and so forth. And that, that, you know, I mean, they did. They did. But but if you look at it, even American history, but certainly world history, typically what you have is very, yeah, men on the very top and group of elite women around them and then very oppressed people of both sexes on the bottom. Sometimes it's hard to say who had it worse. Now, it's true there were a lot of laws that, you know, held women back and kept women out of the public sphere. If you were conscripted in World War One, it was pretty bad if you were a man, right? Yeah. I see what you're saying. But it, but thing, I'm just saying in terms of like what was available to you or like just smaller things that happened in the 20th century, that if you were a woman who, you know, had managed to break barriers and go to an elite law school and there were women going to law schools, you know, who were coming into the law firms in the workplace in the 1970s, the office environment was horrendous. You were still viewed as a sex object. And well, that... I think I think you're right. I think we even learned that from the Me Too movement. Now, it, yeah, Me Too did right. And it's done. That's still some it's it, not as bad as it was. But it's, there, yeah, there was something very important that we that the just the mores of the workplace were not up to 21st century standards and certainly not the workplace in certain areas like Hollywood and, you know, television stations and so forth. But it, no, I. I agree with you that it, but, but what I reject is the view that it was systemic in the sense that we, you know, we just had to burn down the system, including the right. legal order. I think, but, the but with order, there could, there could be an acknowledgement. It's the U.S. Right. Constitution that liberated women. And if you want to have access to abortion, it is the Constitution that will get that right back. You will just have to go through the process. So I believe in that system. However, the, the radicals in my world in academic philosophy were contemptuous and continue to be. And now they've raised a generation of kids who don't even really know the arguments for classical liberalism and how dangerous it is to reject the rule of law, especially democratic sure. law. And you are hearing a lot of people now just uh, both on the right and left who don't believe in our in the American system and have no faith in the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and think it's just failed us. And I think that's that's nonsense and dangerous. Well, I think that I 100% agree with you. And I got to, I mean, we're, we're at the end of the interview. I was going to ask you about whether you have found strange bedfellows, as it were, with some radical feminists on the trans issue, which is in a yes. way... So just yeah. briefly tell us, like, if you, so funny. you used to it's used to spar with these radical feminists. We were talking to us about them. And now it's like you guys are kind of on the same side when it comes yes, to as a woman. Julie Bendel and I've women that think the way they do sort of hard line radical feminists that think the worst of men and so forth. I've debated them. And but now a whole group of them have very courageously taken positions against trans radicals. 
and I admire them. And I'm horrified by the, their efforts to intimidate them, silence them, cancel them. And so I've taken their side. I don't agree with their worldview. And I would love to have an opportunity to meet with them because now that we're allies, maybe I could change their mind or maybe they'll change mine and I'll realize we really do live in a patriarchal, oppressive society. But I, I'm, I now have friends in, in or allies who were once, yeah, on the other side, my other side of the debate. <laughs> so you take the view that if you identify as a woman, you and you're a prisoner, you shouldn't get to go to a woman's prison if you have male, if you're biologically male. That seems like common sense to me. And like, I, I even, imagine I was 96% I was of the world or something, you know, like. I was in a hotel in Brooklyn, this sort of mm. new modern construction. And the, the bathroom, if you were downstairs in the lobby, the bathroom was down was in the basement. I went down there and it was unisex. So you mm. go in, in the basement going into space. Most women wouldn't like that. And then any man could have come out of the next stall. I didn't like it. Women will not. I, I, I find this untenable. And then you mentioned the prisons and but the whole thing. It hasn't been thought through. I am not hostile to on the, on the trans issue. I think it's a legitimate human rights issue. Support it. But there are there are contested issues about the transitioning of of children and teenagers that we need to debate. And anytime you try to debate it, they say you're transphobic and they want to come into women's spaces and women may not ironically, want that. Ironically, and it does, it's not, it didn't start with it, but ironically, they're taking a page from the radical feminists who, as you say, sort of, you know, replaced the liberal, classical liberal feminists. And it's something that happened to a lot of liberal, you know, progressives, you know, in the last 50 years, whereas, you know, the idea that we should debate these controversial things as we think about it. And then, by the way, even the acknowledgement that, hey, by debating it, even if you will allow views that you think are offensive or wrong, they might see something that you don't and you'll have a better outcome or better policy on it. That is now gone. And now we are, we've got a whole sort of side of the political debate that wants to suppress, deplatform, and basically, you know, anathematize view, views that they consider to be heresies. And then we are no longer really engaged in any kind of free discourse, right? I mean, at that point, we are, that, that is, that, that is a, that's a one-way ticket to the dark ages. If we, if we, if, if, if that, if that view really does take over and that's the real problem, independent of where you are on abortion or, or all these other issues. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, and that's what I'm warning about this, this illiberal crusade challenging the fundamentals of our constitutional democracy that has worked, that has liberated us all. And to to not not for students not to learn about that and not to have not to be grateful for it and to be protective of it it makes me very sad but i'm i'm optimistic i think i still think the united states is uh, you know a, a pretty effective democracy and that we we can work out these differences i i don't think i yeah I hear these predictions that we're going to go you know have another civil war i see i, I don't believe that not yet <laughs> we're gonna have a, a a civil 
war online. It'll be a flame war. It'll be It'll like be a flame Twitter war. war. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be, of, I hopefully. A lot of people are going to be blocked and reported, but That's, I think. Well, yeah, a great podcast that we both like a lot. The Blocked and Reported podcast. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Christina Hopsummers, it has been a delight. You are a brilliant and wonderful woman. I am so glad that you were able to take some time to talk to my audience in the podcast. And I know that we'll have you on again. And I really I do appreciate you coming on. So thank you for coming on The Reeducation. My pleasure. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.